Uh, I remember my 30th birthday party really quite well. Um, my friends threw a surprise party for me, and uh, so that makes it kind of memorable. And I got the usual array of gag gifts and whatnot that one often gets at an occasion like this, but I got one gift that I have kept all these years, almost 27 years later, and it is this uh, Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Yes, Leafs Nation. Um, and, oh, boy. Ushers, please escort that uh, person. Um, <clears throat> I am a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, I must say. I'm kind of mad at them right now. Uh, I seem to be mad at them every spring. Then we kind of make up in the fall, and uh, this has been our dysfunctional relationship uh, since like 1967, which was the last time they won anything. Um, but this was, when I was 30, this was a really appropriate gift, because this is an athletic jersey. This is the real thing. This is the CCM jersey that the Leafs were bear, uh, wearing back in 94. It even has, if you look under here, it's even got the tie down uh, so you don't get jerseyed when you're in a fight. This was the real thing. And this was, you know, when I was 30, I was athletic, and I was trim, and I was fit, and I was energetic. So this was like a super appropriate gift, I think. Forgive me, Leafs Nation, I am putting this on the ground. Um, then I turned 50. And when I turned 50, my wife gave me this. And I don't know if you can see what this is. I'm going to turn this on, hold it up close to the mic. I don't know if you can hear that. Yes, yes. This is a, this is a nostril hair trimmer. And... Um, it is, for, it is for trimming unwanted nostril hairs and ear hairs, it's dual purpose. It also comes with an attachment um, that you can use on your eyebrows to keep them from becoming these out of control facial shrubs. Um, so I don't know if you can see kind of the difference here, 30, 50. Uh, apparently I didn't need this when I was 30. Uh, but when I turned 50, apparently I did need this. Maybe I even needed it prior to that. I'm not sure. I don't want to know. Um, here's a, you're going to see a picture of me. This is a fairly recent picture. I want you to look at it closely because it's going to change. It's going to fast forward five years. This is what science says I'm going to look like in five years. There's only one word I can think of to describe that, and it is the word disintegration. Disintegration. And all you have to do is just look around you. You can look around at this room that you're sitting in. This room is in the process of disintegration. I am in the process of disintegration. Look around you at the people around you. The people around you are disintegrating. I am in a state of decay as I'm standing here talking to you. Back in, um, back around the 1st of March, I said to my wife, okay, we're, we're starting at Sobel June 1st, so there was a month, and I thought it would be really good probably for me to maybe like drop 10 pounds or so. Because over these months of COVID, I've put on a little bit of weight, not the COVID-19 that some uh, 
reportedly have put on, but I for sure put on the COVID-10. So I thought, oh, it'd probably be a good idea to drop those 10. Then I can come to Sobel and be, you know, energetic and trim and, and ready to go. So uh, around the 1st of May, I started this very disciplined regimen of diet and exercise. And I'm very happy to report to you that as of this morning, I am now only 14 pounds away from my goal. <laughs> no, that is not some kind of new math. Uh, that's just the same old math that no longer works in my favor now that I'm almost 57 as opposed to 30. I wake up some mornings with aches and pains. Anybody? Yeah, there's hands all over. Now, it used to be, back in the day, um, if I woke up, like when I was 30, if I woke up with aches or pains, I would immediately know why. It was the tournament that I'd just been in the weekend prior, or it was the game of full contact roller hockey. So you wake up with some aches and pains. Now, wake up with aches and pains and there's no explanation. There's no good reason for it. They're just for the heck of it. And then you turn 50 and you get a nostril hair trimmer. Um, so next Sunday is Father's Day. Uh, I don't know if any of you need to shop for dad for Father's Day, but might I suggest the, uh, let me get the model number here. Uh, this is the Philips Series 3000. Don't get the 2000, it's inadequate, apparently for me, get the 3000. Um, nothing says I love you like a nostril hair trimmer. It's a gift that says, dad, I love you, but I would love you a lot more if your nose was not quite so disgusting. There is something that is pulling everything apart. Everything around you is in the process of disintegrating, including us. The creation has become corrupted. But how can that possibly be the case? Because God is the creator, and God is not corrupt. God is all good. He's all love. So how can creation be corrupt? And yet here we are, we're all living proof of that hair growing where we don't want it to grow, not growing where we would kind of like it to grow. My head has become this weird race of bald and gray. Gray is winning, but don't count bald out. If you met some of my family members, you'd know that that's a distinct possibility for, for me. We know as we read the Bible that the world was not created to be like this. Instead, God created the world to reflect His integration, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect harmony, perfect relationality, perfect integration, and the creation was, uh, was to display that, to put that beauty and that harmony on display. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit create the world in such a way that every part of the creation re relates to every other part of the creation perfectly. Perfect integration, perfect harmony, perfect beauty, uh, perfectly reflecting the glory of God. And because God is a relational God, and because love is His DNA, and because love is His highest ideal, um, He does that out of relationship. And if you think of it, God, everything God does, He does out of relationship. And so God creates angels. And he creates them with some authority. 
He gives the angelic beings some say-so, some influence, some ability to exercise authority over, over important areas of creation. And so the creative intent of God in that is that the, the angelic realm was to exercise authority in such a way that they would do so under the overarching authority of God. And so God is accomplishing His will in relationship, in cooperation, in partnership uh, with the angelic realm. And so his relationality is put on full display. And then he, he creates humans. And he gives human beings some authority over the earth and over the animal kingdom. And again, his creative intent is that as humans reign on the earth and over the animal kingdom, they would do so under the overarching reign of God. And so God, on the one hand, is reigning in cooperation and collaboration with the angelic realm on one hand and in, in another way with humans on, a, on another level, all of which just reflects his beauty, his peace, his harmony. He is Lord of all, co-ruling with angels and with humans, his relationality, his, his shalom, his peace, uh, perfectly on display. Now, unfortunately, uh, probably all of you uh, know how this story turned out. These angels that God created were created with volition, with the ability to choose. Um, you cannot have love without choice. And so these angels were created with the ability to choose, and so ultimately they had the ability to choose against God, and some of them did. And there was a civil war, a rebellion of sorts in the angelic realm led by one that we know to be Satan. And so now these rebel angels, these fallen angels, having made themselves evil, well, now they exercise their authority but at cross-purposes with God. No longer these fallen angels uh, reflecting integration, now they're reflecting disintegration, and they bring decay and destruction and corruption into that realm over which God had given them authority. This an enemy has done. I want you to remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. And so, some very <clears throat> important aspects of God's creation have become uh, corrupted. And then, human beings, of course, if you've read Genesis chapter 3, you know that human beings get sucked into this, get, get um, pulled into this, uh, they get co-opted into this conflict. And so, the first human beings in Genesis 3 end up surrendering their authority over the earth and over the animal kingdom to these fallen rebel angels and to Satan. And so, now the corruption and the decay that was introduced into the angelic realm, the, the unseen world, now invades the earth. And so the earth uh, becomes corrupted and creation is, is corrupt, and, and the earth is now run by these rebellious agents, both human and angelic, who now use their authority <clears throat> not to express the integration of God, but to bring disintegration. Thank you. And they exercise their authority now at cross purposes with God. This an enemy has done. The Apostle Paul uh, captures this brilliantly in one sentence, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. 
Paul says, for the creation, and that word creation is the Greek word kitsis, it, it has the idea of the sum total of everything that has been created. The sum total of everything that God has created was subjected to futility. That's the word in the New American Standard. The NIV says frustration. All of creation subjected to futility, to frustration. The Greek word is matayotes, and a, a a, a, a scholar that I really find helpful, a guy named Greg Boyd, really explained this Greek term matiotes, frustration, depravity, really well. He said it means depravity, frailty, devoid of appropriateness, subject to decay, subject to futility, subject to disintegration. It means that, that, that um, something is no longer operating in the way that it was originally intended to operate. Subject to frailty, subject to disintegration, subject to matiotes. It means that in creation, nothing is working quite right. The creation no longer reflects the harmony and the beauty and the relationality and the integration of God like it was supposed to. Instead, it now reflects conflict. It now reflects disintegration. And so conflict permeates everything. Um, this creation has become this fallen war zone. Everything is in the process of disintegration. Maybe you've asked the question, well, why is this world the kind of place that breeds cancer? It's because we're subject to matiotes, to depravity, to frailty, to disintegration. Nothing works the way that it was intended to be. Why are there Catastrophic natural disasters, some of which kill children. Why are there so many diseases and crop failures and famines and earthquakes and fires and so many things on planet Earth that make it so hard for so many people just to survive? How could the creation become like this? Oh, yes. Thank you, Paul. Matayotes. It's been subjected to depravity, disintegration. It's a war zone. Every once in a while, Gene and I will watch a like an animal show on Netflix. If you watch Netflix, or some great uh, animal thing. But I watch these animal shows, and I'm always shocked at how violent the animal world is. And, and it's like, why are the animals so violent when God the Creator is not? And we know from reading the book of Genesis that it wasn't originally created to be that way. It's been corrupted. Violence permeates it all. Corruption permeates it all. The, the creation has become a war zone. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. So there's violence, corruption, disease. There's disease that affects innocent children. That is not God's perfect plan for your life. This an enemy has done. Why is this world the kind of place that breeds COVID-19? That's a pretty popular question right now, isn't it? Where does COVID come from? What is the source? What's its origin? There's tons of speculation about that. Lots of theories, lots of speculation, lots of suspicion, lots of finger pointing, right? We've, we've all seen that and read that. Think of it this way. Whether COVID-19 is just something that this corrupt creation spits out like it does hurricanes and cancer, or whether COVID-19 is something more intentionally generated by fallen agents, whether 
human or angelic. Either way, it's matayotes. This world is subject to matayotes, to depravity, to decay, to disintegration. This an enemy has done. That phrase, this an enemy has done, uh, it's, it's something Jesus said. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, Jesus tells a story, a parable, about a guy, a farmer, who plants a field of wheat. And then uh, he goes home, goes to bed, and under the cover of darkness, an enemy comes to that same field and sows weeds uh, or tares, they're, they're often referred to. And um, at some point, as the wheat begins to grow, so too do the weeds, and eventually the, the farmhands see the wheat growing and the weeds among the wheat, and they get uh, very concerned. They run to the farmer and say, there's weeds in the wheat. What happened? And the farmer said, I planted the wheat. I did not plant the weeds. This an enemy has done. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that this world is not the way that it was supposed to be. The wheat of the father and the weeds of the enemy all kind of mixed together in this war zone in which we live. And we see this on display every day. We see this in the kingdoms of this world. We see this in the politics of the kingdoms of this world. This an enemy has done. The kingdoms of this world are the playground of fallen angels and fallen humans operating, exercising their authority at cross purposes with God. This an enemy has done. God is not the author of COVID-19. Don't hang that on him. The God who looks like Jesus was not up in heaven in 2010 going, oh, let's see, Haiti, earthquake for you. The God who looks like Jesus is not up in heaven going, cancer for you, forest fire for you, uh, disaster, drought. That's not the God who looks like Jesus. The God who looks like Jesus was not up in heaven in early 2020 going, hey, today's special, COVID-19 for everybody. Uh, not at all. This an enemy has done. Here's my concern. Over these last uh, 16 months of COVID in particular, more and more, I'm seeing Christians focusing on the weeds, focusing on the works of the enemy, sticking their noses in deeply to smell the rot of corruption. And what it does is it breeds fear, it breeds anxiety, breeds suspicion. Let me encourage you to stop focusing on the weeds and start focusing on Jesus. When you focus on the weeds, you're actually being co-opted. You're being sucked in by the works of the enemy. Coronavirus, COVID-19, is the result of a corrupted cosmos. This an enemy has done to bring disintegration. Let's focus on the Christ who brings integration. Focus on the wheat and not on the weeds. When you focus on the weeds... It breeds fear and suspicion and anxiety and division. When you focus on the wheat, it breeds love and peace and faith and trust and rest and unity. So let's, let's choose to reflect in our own lives as individuals and in our church collectively 
the integration of God rather than the disintegration of the enemy. So this world is not now the way that it was intended to be. We know that. But thankfully, God did not leave us in this mess. He did not leave us to to, uh, just be victims of matayotes, victims of depravity. No, we read in the Scripture that it was the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who became a human being. And he died on the cross in order to bring an end to matayotes, to bring an end to evil and depravity. He died on the cross not just to save humans. That's so often how we think of it, isn't it? See, the problem of evil is not just a human problem. It's a cosmic problem, seen and unseen. And so the solution to evil can't just be a human solution. For a cosmic problem, you need a cosmic solution. And what we find in the Scripture is that when Jesus died on the cross, He put an end to matayotes and brought peace throughout the cosmos. It was about defeating principalities and powers that now oppress. And so the death of Jesus was about bringing reconciliation reconciliation of all things, whether in earth or in the unseen world, back into integration with God. Again, Paul expresses this way better than I can in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For God, in all His fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. There's that God who looks like Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. And through Him, that is through Christ, God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. See, see, reconciliation of all things, making peace, that's an amazing passage. But here's my question for you. If God has put an end to matayotes, to depravity, corruption, disintegration, and if He's done that by way of the cross of Jesus, why do we not see the effects of that today. If God has solved the disintegration problem by way of the cross, why do I still have hair growing out of my nose? And why is there cancer? And why are there pandemics? And why why would a beautiful, loving family get mercilessly mowed down on a sidewalk in London? And why would there be the discovery of a mass grave containing the human remains of 215 precious, beautiful children created in the image and likeness of God, mercilessly discarded into a mass grave at a residential school in Kamloops? If God has reconciled all things, if He's brought peace through the unseen and the seen world by way of the the cross of Jesus, why don't we see the effects of that now? That is where we want to start next week. Uh, So please come back. Please come back next week, and we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about what, what New Testament scholars will refer to as the now but not yet. The now, but not yet. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that. But um, I want to make just a couple of more quick 
points, and then we'll, we'll wrap up for today. A couple of more points, because it's possible you're sitting out there thinking, uh, I thought this was going to be a sermon on love. I thought this was forward together in love. Not really feeling the love uh, today. This seems like a lot of bad news. Um, this is kind of the prologue to our series on love. This is the backstory. And I don't, think we, I don't think we can fully grasp the priority of love unless we know the backstory, unless we know the need for love, right? So this is, this is a little bit of backstory today. Like we want to talk about forward together in love and how, how can we as a church move forward together from where we are right now, forward together in love? Because we're so diverse, aren't we? We've got all kinds of different opinions about all kinds of different things. I'm sure I could go around this whole room and we could introduce any number of topics and we would find a, a whole bunch of different opinions just in this group here today. So how do we move forward together in love? Take the obvious example of COVID-19. There's a lot of opinions about COVID-19, right? We see them every day in the news and on our feeds, on our phones and whatnot. And these opinions are expressed out in the culture in incredibly divisive ways. I'm sure you've also noticed that. There are some people who, who uh, talk about a pandemic. There are others who talk about plandemics. There are people who talk about COVID-19 as a very serious public health crisis. There are others who look at COVID-19 and feel like it's... It's not that big a deal, like it's kind of overblown and there's lots of overreach uh, in all of this. There's people who, who are for masks and people who are against masks and people who are for vaccines and people who are against vaccines. And all of these opinions get shared in our culture. And the interesting thing, all of these opinions we all share. And I'm sure we've got a whole bunch of different opinions about COVID-19 right here in this room. I'm sure we do. But one of the things I love best about the church is that we can have a broad diversity of opinion, even about COVID, and yet be unified by Jesus at the center. Because even if, even if we're so far apart in our opinions about COVID, the fact that we're drawn to Jesus at the center means that we are being drawn to each other. While, while being drawn to the center, even despite our opinions and despite the, uh, despite the diversity. And I, lo I, lo I love this about the church. I love the fact that we can be in the church and have such uh, an incredible diversity of opinion. It just makes it so interesting. People are so interesting uh, to me. But the commonality of our commitment to Jesus at the center makes possible beautiful unity makes possible a singleness of attitude and a singleness of purpose in the midst of our diversity. Do you know that Jesus actually intends this? Jesus is so intentional about this, he did everything short of hitting us in the head with a two-by-four to help us see it. You're familiar with the 12 disciples, I'm sure, and how Jesus selected them. He handpicked them, right? They didn't volunteer. He went, I want you, I want you, you follow me, you follow me, you follow me. You 12, let's go. And they did. 
In Matthew chapter 9, we read about Matthew, who is one of the twelve, and how he uh, came to be a follower of Jesus. And we read Matthew 9, beginning of verse 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Matthew is considered scum. Why? Matthew is a Jewish man, and uh, he becomes a tax collector. And we, we know that in this first century context that Israel was occupied by an enemy force. The Romans had invaded, conquered, and taken over Israel. They were in charge, and they collectively had their boot on the necks of the Jewish people. And so Matthew is a Jewish man, and his, his thinking is, if you can't beat them, join them. So he becomes a tax collector, collecting tax for the enemy, for the Roman occupiers. And tax collectors in this era were notoriously greedy, and they would skim off the top to line their own pockets, meaning that Matthew, not only is he a sympathizer and a collaborator with the occupying enemy forces, but he's also exploiting his own people in the process to get rich. He was hated, scum, considered treasonous, a collaborator, a sympathizer. And so Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. If you go to Matthew chapter 10, there you read a, a full list of the 12 that Jesus chooses, and all 12 would be so fun just to, to talk about, but let's, let's look at one. So let's name them, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, we just talked about him, James, Thaddeus, then Simon the zealot. There's an interesting character. Simon is also a Jewish man, but very unlike Matthew. So Matthew is like, if you can't beat him, join him. Simon is beat him at all cost. Simon would be the guy wearing camo, all right, willing to spill his blood on the streets of Jerusalem to fight the enemy at all, uh, at all costs and at every opportunity. Simon's goal and role in life was to kill as many Romans as he possibly could. And not only to kill Romans, but to kill as many Jewish collaborators and sympathizers as possible. Simon's role and goal is to kill people like Matthew. Jesus says, Matthew, I want you. Simon, I want you. You talk about a diversity of um, opinion, you can't find probably two people more diametrically opposed to one another in the way that they see life and the way that they see the world. Why, why on earth would Jesus intentionally select those two guys to be part of the twelve? I'll tell you why. To demonstrate the power of his love to unite people. And to model for us, his church, the power of moving forward together in love. Forward together in unity, despite our diversity, despite our diverse opinions on so many issues. It is 
it is our love for one another in the midst of our diversity that is going to be the thing, Jesus says, that is so compelling for our culture to see. Jesus says, by this one thing, by your love for one another, Matthew and Simon, you two guys who are so far apart, it will be your love for each other as they are drawn to Jesus at the center, they will be drawn to each other, and that is the compelling thing for our culture to see. That's how the world is going to know that we're followers of Jesus, by our love for each other, our love for Jesus, our love for all others, despite our differences of opinions. Our common love for Jesus and our commitment to Jesus at the center creates a bond that is so strong and so powerful that it can bear the weight of many differences of opinion on matters of secondary importance. We're out of time, and I can't wait to come back to this next week. I hope you come back. Come back and bring a friend. Uh, and we'll jump back into this. And I promise that next week we will at least dip our toes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the love chapter. That's where we want to spend uh, a bunch of time. But we're going to close for now. And uh, we'll do it this way. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And let me just say this. If you've come here today and you've got a need in your heart, if your heart is heavy with need, I want to invite you to, after we do the, pronounce the benediction, uh, to come on forward, and um, we'd love to pray with you. Um, so I'd want to invite you to come and pray. Maybe you're here today, and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never uh, surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, and you just sense the Spirit is kind of nudging you in that direction. Please come. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you in that. Maybe, uh, maybe over these last number of months, maybe you've been distracted by the weeds a little bit, and it's bred some fear and some anxiety in your life. And you want to say, no more, I want to focus on Jesus. And you want to come and you kind of want to solidify that in prayer together. We would love to invite you just to come and pray. Maybe you're here and your heart is just like bursting full. It's full of praise. Maybe you've got a great answer to prayer or a praise report, and you'd love to come and just celebrate that. We can celebrate that in prayer with you. You can come. If you're feeling the Spirit just kind of nudging you to come and pray afterwards, please do. For the rest of you, I would encourage you to head outside. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Uh, let's head straight outside. We don't want to mingle inside. We're not supposed to do that. But don't just, don't just drive away. I'm sure if you look around the room, there's people you haven't seen for a while and you'd love to catch up and chat. There's lots of room to spread out and have lots of wonderful conversations. It's a beautiful day outside. So I want to uh, close in prayer, and uh, I'm going to read a, our closing prayer. And it's actually not really even a prayer, but we're going to make it our prayer. It's the words of Paul from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him and let your lives be built on Him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. 
For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So friends, I'm going to uh, encourage you to go and be centered on Jesus this week. Go out and be lavish and outrageous lovers of each other and all others in Jesus' name. So grace and peace to all of you. God bless.